All right, good evening and welcome again to On the Shoulders of Giants, our overview of church history. A lot of interesting things to learn about this evening. Um, so we're going to look at uh, Puritans, that all-encompassing period that we have heard of but probably don't know a lot about, as well as the Enlightenment, which is very similar. You, we're all familiar with the terms, but if someone were talking about it, we just have to nod our head and you know, pretend to understand. So hopefully after tonight, we'll understand a little bit more. But before we jump in, I'm going to ask Brad to open us in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your work of redemption in our hearts and Lord, in the history of mankind. Ever since the world began, you uh, have been building uh, your kingdom. It's a fallen uh, world that we live in, but even so, your kingdom exists both now and uh, not yet already and not yet and we thank you for the role that we get to play in the kingdom but lord as we look in the past at these ones who have so influenced uh, the ways that we think and uh, worship you both good and bad we pray that you would give us understanding uh, and that we might profit and benefit from our knowledge of uh, the ways that people have understood you and sought you and ways that they understood that you sought them out. We pray you'll guide our thinking tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see from our agenda this evening, uh, we don't have the luxury of relying on another pastoral uh, informant to really give us some insight, so you're stuck with us again. But hopefully uh, we can... I know I've learned a lot just studying for uh, relaying the information about the Puritans to you, so I hope you are able to, to get some of that information. I know there's a lot of uh, reading and MP3s that were very helpful uh, for me to listen to. So when you think of Puritans, what do you really think of? What, what sort of things come to mind? Witch Maybe. trials. Witch trials, yep. yep. We know that was in the history, in our own American history. You may think of just, a, you, if you're like me, you may picture just an old, white, balding, Victorian, prudish man. And not really very fun to be around, perhaps. Uh, I wonder how many of us could name maybe ten Puritans. I've got to put my arm down because it's, it's very difficult to come up with. How about five? How about two? Okay, so Puritans are one of those things that we've heard of, but we're not very familiar with maybe the leaders of the movement or what the movement was all about even. So when I started looking at what Puritanism is, I had a bunch of jumbled ideas and terms floating around in my head. So the more I read and more I studied, the more ideas and terms were thrown at me. So I really had to, to narrow it down. Okay, let's, let's go back to simple Simple formula, the five W's. Let me ask the five W's. That's something I can understand, and hopefully I'll be able to relay that same information. So who, who are they? Who are the Puritans? Where did they come from? Where, where did they minister? When was this movement? Is it still continuing? Is there bookends to it? Uh, what did they believe? And why did they exist? And also, why have they disappeared if they have disappeared? So first, who were the Puritans? And this comes by way of uh, Ligonier. You can look at any number of, of definitions 
really depends on who you ask um, and really whether or not Puritanism was good or bad, whether it, they had solid biblical leaders or you know, tainted beliefs. It really depends on, on who you ask. So we, there was a wide range of, uh, of ideas about the Puritans and definitions about who they were basically centered on modern perceptions of Puritans versus who they were in context of, of their time. So um, when you start studying about the Puritans, three things immediately jump out to you. There are three movements, you might say, that really distinguish themselves from one another that uh, encompass the, the era from the Reformation to, we might say, American colonialism. Uh, rationalism is that turn that, that Europe has taken which excluded God and they went deistic or even atheistic and tried to answer life's questions and hopefully we'll understand a little bit more about that uh, later this evening as Brad explains to us what rationalism is and how it morphed through the decades and centuries that we know as the Enlightenment. Mysticism is another uh, movement that if the rationalism took a right turn, mysticism took a left. They uh, very much wanted spiritualism, uh, so much so that they maybe have turned off the intellectual aspects and they wanted a, an immediate experience of, of, uh, of God. And then pietism. Pietism is that which wanted to marry in a biblical fashion. We wanted to be a holistic believer having both correct thought and correct living. <clears throat> in mysticism, uh, probably one of the better known groups were the Quakers. And, and just like any group, uh, Puritans, Pietists, Quakers, you name the group, none of them were monolithic. They weren't all the same. So you can't go here and there and say you believe exactly the same thing. But some of the tendencies were that uh, at first, they said, okay, yeah, we love Scripture and we love the immediate interaction with the Spirit, but soon Scripture took a back seat and they all just, the reason why they're called Quakers is they would sit there and rock or quake waiting for you know, the Spirit to move someone in order to utter new revelation or something that they all need to know or do. So those were not the Puritans. Uh, who were the Puritans? When you look at pietism, again, you get three different groups. So we're now in the pietist route. Uh, pietism itself was, um, it, it really was termed for those people who wanted to live a pious life, but focused mainly on mainland Europe. This is Holland, Amsterdam, Germany, those who uh, wanted to keep on reforming the church on mainland Europe. The separatists and Puritans are, again, very like... All these are, in day-to-day -day speech, they would be synonymous. We could use them interchangeably. Uh, however, for our purposes here, the Pietists were mainly on uh, Eastern Europe. Separatists and Pur Puritans both started in England, and we can recognize the Pilgrims as separatists, as they had very similar beliefs as the, the Puritans, although when they were persecuted 
and left England, they went over to uh, Netherlands and Holland and, and that area. They uh, also had interactions with the Quakers and, and other groups. So even within the separatists, the, there was very diverse views and beliefs. And eventually, they came over to America as pilgrims. What separatists believed is they wanted to, to operate within the church and have the church operate outside of government. They wanted that, that separation between church and state, which is still novel in that day and, and period. So who were the Puritans? They were the ones who wanted to continue reforming. They were um, on the coattails of the reformers, and they saw the Reformation coming to a halt in England, where England wanted to have this hybrid church of part Roman Catholic, part Protestant. They wanted to smash it all together and, and have the government rule all of it. And the Puritans didn't like that. They wanted to continue reforming. They wanted to do it from within the ranks of those who served within the church, mind you, the state church, those who served in government, or, or wherever you happen to be. So here are a few uh, takes by uh, some historians, theologians, on who the Puritans were. You should be familiar with Michael Horton. He's a, a very good contemporary uh, theologian. He has radio talk show, uh, many books, Systematic Theology Out. And Joel Beek seems to be something of a, a Puritan expert. He's got a few books that uh, I'll have listed uh, either at the end of tonight's slideshow or online when you look at the resources for this, this week, this month, and Mark Jones as well. So the Puritans really referred to those who wanted to continue reforming. And it was mainly, you know, the question then is, where were the Puritans? And if the Pietists were on mainland Europe, the Puritans were in, in England. And by way of pilgrims and the Massachusetts Bay Company, they uh, came to New England. Virginia is, it was settled, I, I gathered a lot of information also from Catherwood, if you, I hope some of you took advantage of, of that day, I think it was 99 cents, uh, Kindle version, uh, Catherwood's book, so that had a lot of good yes. information. Yes, Kelly Wallace was the one that put us on to Catherwood, and it, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's relatively brief, mm -hmm. and entertaining as get out. It's very good. It's not dry at all. It's just like him sitting there talking to you about his experiences and relating history to modern challenges as well. So uh, quite a bit uh, to learn from him. And uh, so Virginia was basically a secular colony, whereas those in New England, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and so forth, were religious colonies. So before the evening is out, we'll have seen the roots of, of our own local church, move from Reformation Europe to English uh, Christianity, Puritanism, and it's going to cross the pond over the Atlantic to uh, land here in North America. So then we ask, when were the Puritans? Were they a long time ago? Are they still living? One guy actually had, um, I believe he marked Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones as being a Puritan. And he was just 50 years ago. Uh, is that a valid statement? Well, we're, we're going to discuss that a little bit and hopefully come up with a better idea of what Puritan is and 
if it's still around. But this from Mark Jones, that uh, it really emerged from the early 1560s. Uh, and as all good Christian names, it, it started as a derogatory term. Uh, those who, oh, you're a Puritan. Uh, but it came by way of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth of England, uh, who took the throne and all of Protestantism, their hopes were laid on her shoulders. They were hoping, okay, we're going to see a, a reformed England now. And she stopped short of their expectations, even so that uh, I believe it was 1559 that she passed the Act of Supremacy, which created this hybrid of Puritan or Protestant theology, but with Roman Catholic liturgy. So you're practicing in word one thing, but you're practicing with your actions the other. And over it all was the monarchy. Uh, she or those who would follow her would be the head of the, the Anglican church. And with 1559 being the, the act of supremacy, naming herself as the, the head of the church, Puritans could not stand for this. You know, we, we answer to, to Jesus Christ. We need to continue reforming. So that's really the start of where we find the Puritans on the heels of the Reformation. And you can carry it to the 1660s where, um, where are we? There's the Act of Supremacy. And then you could carry it to the 1660s where there was continued uh, persecution. There was uh, English Civil War. Uh, the government changed hands to Cromwell and then back over to the monarchy with Charles II. Well, you can, if you really want a definitive mark, 1689 is probably that mark where the act of toleration, we see toleration for any number of, of denomination or beliefs, not just the Anglican church. But I think as we'll see what they believe, we can also mark in our, in our minds that the Puritan heart continues till today. Just because that particular political movement ended doesn't mean we don't have something to learn from them. So what did they believe? We can see that they generally were Calvinist in their thoughts and beliefs, but that's, again, they're not monolithic, so that can't hold fast for, for all of them. Uh, they were very learned in theology. They understood doctrine. They picked up where the reformers left off in their systematizing, and, and they really grasped the, the deeper doctrines and didn't stop there and didn't stop with arguments in the, the ivory towers, but they brought it down to real life, and they, they wanted to live pure. And that's why they were called Puritans, because they wanted to live pure lives, not only in thought but in deed as well, that what they practiced not only on Sundays but seven days a week, every aspect of their life. I think one of the, the fine additions to what they believed is that um, they raised the idea of the sacredness of the ordinary. Michael Horton actually has a book coming out called Ordinary. It's how God works through us in normal means of grace, uh, sanctifying and purifying us. And they would, take, they would see even the housewife or the mother as being a, a divine calling 
they, that's your mission field. It doesn't, you don't have to be a minister. You can be any walk of life and be ministering the gospel to yourself, to others in your family, to those around you. Uh, it, was, it was brilliant to see biblical Christianity lived out. When James ascended to the throne, we had um, controversy, not only in politics, but theology as well. If you note here, the, the Synod of Dort uh, in 1619, this sort of ratified what Calvinism came to be known for. Fifty years after Calvin died, there was still struggle within the church of understanding his system. And we talked last time about, you know, he didn't write only about predestination. That's not what he wanted to really, con that wasn't the only thing he wanted to convey. Um, but somehow it got picked up by those who wanted to, to study for themselves and say, you know, I don't really think the Bible is teaching this. So this is one of those things I really want us to believe, uh, to understand and for me, for if you're like me, we need to temper sometimes our, our limits, our boundaries of what we think about people who don't agree with us. Uh, Arminians at that time, actually Arminius was a devout Catholic, uh, Calvin, Calvinist. And he got challenged to debate someone who said, no, I think Calvin may have had it wrong here or there. So Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, started studying those points of disagreement and said, you know what, I think you're right, I can't defend Calvinism. So out of that grew this controversy of Arminianism and Calvinism where in 1619 a synod met and said, okay, you had these five disagreements. These are the five points that we have studied and outlined. We do believe scripture teaches this, this, and this. And, and that's what we ha and unfortunately that's what Calvinism has come to be known as. Although Calvin himself would would see it, and he may not recognize it that he didn't want it to be boiled down to a mere system, but rather the the grandeur of, of God being displayed in all aspects of of theology and practice. That's interesting that you, Calvin and I agree with you. Calvin didn't want it to be. Um, narrowed into a system, although that's exactly what he did with Scripture. And um, in Calvin, you see some of the, some of the tendencies of Enlightenment-type thinking that would come some 150, 100, a little more than 100 years after Calvin, uh, but he was nothing like rationalist. Mm -hmm. um, and Luther would have been less committed to anything like uh, the five points of Calvinism than he was. Luther gave more room for saying there are some things that just can't be explained, but Calvin had that, he just had that need to explain things, and then the, his followers had an even greater need to explain it. And this is what I want us to, to really grasp, is that whatever side of the debate you fall on, Calvinist, Arminian, whatever, the debate was in-house. It, it came out of people who loved God, loved Scripture, wanted to find out who God is and how to serve Him from within the Scriptures. And they just happened to have an honest disagreement as to how to understand what the Scriptures were saying. Uh, so if you're an Ar Arminian, you can't you know, call Calvinists, oh, you're narrow-minded or 
you know, any number of things that you've heard in conversations before. Or if you're a Calvinist, you can't look down your nose at other people saying, oh, you haven't arrived yet. Uh, we're all learning together. We're all journeying together. And I think it's, it's best if we can sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron by listening and going back to the Scripture. And that's what they did is go back to the Scripture and say, you know, is this, is this true according to what God says in His Word? And, and not only that, not only do we define it just in five points, but uh, in, you know, 30, 40 years later in uh, 1646, Westminster, they assembled for, for several months, I believe, and um, really stated publicly what they believe, what Reformed Protestant Puritan theology is. And they put out both the catechism, which is a list of questions and answers that would help you or help children growing up understand what we believe. What does the Bible say about this? Uh, if there's a question, you know, what is sin? Who is God? They had, they had answers in order to train their youth. And then ecclesiology, they said, we're not Anglican, we're not Roman Catholic. We like the Presbyterians, but we're not Presbyterian either. So this is how we see church government operating. And so uh, Westminster Assembly put out uh, several items, and actually I'm going to link to a free version of it. I can't remember if it's PDF or, or Kindle, uh, but it's out there. I read through it. I'm sure we can, we can learn a lot from that. So why do we have Puritans? Why do they exist? Again, we already talked about the Anglican hybrid of it's okay to believe Protestant theology, you just have to practice it in a Romish way. And pretty soon, you've got to wonder, you know, if you're preaching one thing and practicing another, are you really who you think you are? And the Puritans said, you know, we can't follow your laws. We've got to, we've got to obey God rather than men. And we see that Elizabeth failed to meet their expectations James I and Charles II, well, there's a whole string of, of monarchs who continued either to swing and bring Catholicism back into the picture or establish that Anglican church and still prosecute you know, the Puritans and, and separatists. What we see from, uh, again, Joel Beek is talking about the three needs that he's identified why the, the Puritans existed, is they need biblical preaching and piety. Again, not only understanding the truth, but living it out. And, and simplicity, they were very simple. When you think of the pilgrims, you just think of very plain clothes. Um, their, their services were uh, preaching, a lot of textual reading, and then a lot of time given to the preaching of the word, whereas the Anglican church would have they have a book of prayer that you read from. They would have hymns sung and then you know, homilies. And I think of, uh, I had to go back and, and listen to this again. There was one lady, I believe it was the 1630s, uh, maybe the 40s, I can't remember now, uh, Jenny Geddes. I can't remember her age, but I just imagine her as just a, a feisty little 80-year-old woman who was uh, very faithful to a, a, a nonconformist or a Puritan church. And when the laws came out that they had to read from the book of prayer, which was this Anglican hybrid book of, of prayers in Latin, she heard the Latin and, and she could understand what they were saying. And she said, how dare you read the mass in my ears? And picked up her stool and chucked it at the minister's head. 
So th this is the type of uh, Puritan living that, hey, no holds barred. We've, we're standing for truth. Don't bring that stuff in here. Uh, <laughs> so here, Brad, reading in Latin. <laughs> now, let's not take that example uh, literally for us, but uh, that is, that's the staunchness in which they believe don't compromise. But we have to ask the question, too, why did the Puritans disappear? Uh, again, we saw the act of toleration, which eliminated uh, the persecution officially, uh, although at that time thousands of Puritan ministers had been imprisoned or, or killed based on uh, the laws in the, in the previous 20 years. We're also going to look at a few other things, not only political laws, but maybe um, more esoteric type reasons why they disappeared from the scene. Persecution, obviously being one of them, in 1660, I believe, was uh, a series of laws enacted which outlawed Puritanism. You couldn't preach it. Uh, the preachers had to live at least five miles away from the church that they ministered at. So there was several of these laws enacted which, for the very purpose of eliminating any nonconformist movement. Tolerance and nonconformists. So uh, when toleration came about, was there really a need to pursue this nonconformist movement? Politically speaking, not really, but you know that, that heart still needs to live on in, to some degree. But criticisms we've seen of Puritanism, they reduced Reformed theology to a system, and they boiled down the grandeur of living life in the presence of God, for God, down to do you believe these few things? And again, not everybody, but these are some of the characters that we, we find validated in certain individuals in this time period. Uh, they tend to be very introspective, almost to a fault, where if you look at yourself, do you have the evidence? Are you living out the fruit of your conversion? And if you are always inward focused, that can be so depressing. I know it, it can be for me, because you see so much of your faults and failures that they get away from the simplicity that, that Luther had. It's like, it's behind you. Thank God that it was paid for at the cross and then move on. So they, they sort of lost that, that balance. Uh, another criticism is that they focus too much on the subjectiveness of sanctification rather than that objective justification, which I just mentioned uh, Luther would have. He focused on justification. Okay, you're justified. That's a fact based on um, the exchange made at the cross. Uh, our sin for Christ's righteousness. Now that sin, put it behind you and live a sanctified life for Christ. Whereas they focused on the fruit, the feeling, the evidence, the, you know, do you feel saved? Are there evidence of, of your salvation? And not only did they turn that inward towards themselves, but to the next generation as well, uh, which breeds legalism. Uh, they wanted to force that system force that subject, subjective feelings and evidences on those outside themselves, on the children coming into the church. And when children 
are under rules without a relationship, we know that results in rebellion. Rebellion could be apathy on the part of the children, which we may identify with nowadays. We, we see the youth fleeing church the first chance they get because they've lived under a household of rules without really knowing why those rules existed. They, they had no relationship with the God who impressed those rules upon their parents. Or the rebellion could come in the form of persecution, as we saw from the, the Anglican church. We saw even from uh, churches that migrated to North America, and which is our next point, is their own intolerance. We, we think a lot of times where we teach our kids that the pilgrims, they wanted to come to America to establish religious freedom. Well, sort of. They wanted freedom for their own beliefs, but they still didn't grant freedom to those who disagreed with them. Uh, in 1620, the pilgrims as separatists withdrew from England, uh, withdrew from the society, withdrew from government, and came over to America to establish um, Plymouth. And they did not tolerate beliefs outside of their own separatist beliefs. However, nine years later, the Massachusetts Bay Company came over with very similar Puritan beliefs and established um, in, inside Massachusetts. And it was, it's still a wonder to some why James I would have allowed this Puritan company to establish in the name of England a religious colony. But it, it looks like that he didn't realize that Massachusetts Bay Company was run by so many Puritans. He just thought it was just, just a business. Uh, so their intolerance, even in the New World, became one of their downfalls. Uh, it wasn't until later that we see the toleration, that separation. They just couldn't separate church and state. Even the separatists, they created their own government based on, on their church. And we see that uh, finally coming to some of an end in the, the formation of the American colonies that you know, we have that separation that you can influence the state without the state running the church. They're not mandating you be a part of this particular church. You don't give funds to a particular denomination. Uh, so that's one reason why we don't see them uh, as a formal group today. But why are they important? I like uh, Horton's thoughts here that for him, it was that, that balance, that middle ground of biblical reform theology that gave him both uh, fulfillment intellectually, understanding what God has written in his word, but also experiencing it. It's not just a formal theology, doc, dry doctrine, but a life of, of purity lived in front of God and for God. Here are some of the, the points of, of writing that uh, would be helpful as you pick up any number of Puritan books, either from them or about them. You can see how they're Trinitarian. They really wanted to experience spirituality. And you see there, uh, the third line from the bottom, they wanted to list, live a holistic faith. Again, that's every aspect of life, not just Sunday mornings, not just for ministers, but for every person. Every aspect of life is to be lived out of uh, a desire to please God. And this is one of the things that got him in trouble with James, King James, who uh, actually created a book of sport, of those things, 
counter to the church, those things you can do on the Sabbath, whereas you know, the, the Puritan idea was we want to withdraw from secular activity so we can focus on God, but yet when persecution comes in the form of opposition, they take that sanctifying discipline and they turn it into a rule saying, oh, you cannot do these things. You, you can't practice those sports. Uh, let me also mention also about King James. I think, I thought I had a slide on it in here, but um, the pilgrims. Which Bible do you think they brought with them on the Mayflower over to the New, new World? Geneva, very good. It was not the King James Bible. And it's counter to what many people think, but King James did not authorize the Bible for the benefit of, of the Reformed Puritan Church. It was in opposition because 50 years, you know, half a century prior to the authorized version, the Geneva Bible was, was out. And for many years, many uh, generations, Puritans wouldn't be caught dead with uh, a King James translation of the Bible because that would have been meant conforming to a less than biblical church state. Uh, King James was also known to be homosexual. He uh, introduced laws for his own church that uh, were in direct opposition to the Puritan movement. When he came down from Scotland, the, the English nonconformists were, were really happy. It was like, okay, maybe he'll bring with him the, the open door, the opportunity to have John Knox's reform and Presbyterianism, maybe it's rubbed off on them, and as a United Kingdom, we can experience real reform in the churches. That's not the case. Um, it, it's funny also to me, some of those people you may run into who are King James only, they say, okay, nothing beats the 1611. Well, for, for half a century, people used an English translation that was not King James. And actually, the King James Version, it took a council of them, but much of what they translated came from Tyndale and the Geneva Bibles, and, and there were English translations prior to that. It, the reason it was authorized was for his own political benefit, expediency, that it was the only authorized version to be read in public. The Puritans, however, uh, did not conform, obviously, as nonconformists. One of the principles of Bible translation is not only to go to the original languages, but to give um, all uh, honor to the translations that have gone before. So it's not just a matter of go to the original languages. It, translations always um, investigate the work of translation in the in the versions that have gone before, and most conservative theological scholars would say that we need to constantly be offering new translations. Not like every year, but every generation needs two or three fresh translations of Scripture. So what may be the best translation today might not be the best translation so 20 years from now. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Because all of my memory is in the King James, and it's, that's, I never use the King James anymore. Now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, several versions of the NIV have right. come out now. Yeah. <coughs> um, 
Uh, what I was going to say also about the 1611 version is uh, many people say, oh, give me nothing but the 1611 version. Well, you have to ask the question, which 1611 version? Because two or three of them came out that same year. <laughs> and I said, do you want that one that exchanged uh, the name of Jesus for Judas? That, that may not work over so well. Uh, but here, if you want to dive into more Puritan writings, here are a few things. Uh, the first two are books about the Puritans, uh, about their prayer life, uh, a, a synopsis of what they believed. And then that second group are books from the Puritans. Uh, many of you are familiar already with the Valley of Vision. I know, uh, I think, uh, some of our elders have been going through that as a, a devotional. It's just uh, portions of prayers taken from the Puritans all uh, combined in, in a single book. The Death of Death and the Mortification of Sin are both from John Owen. Uh, and just remember, if you're thinking Puritans and you answer John, you're going to be right. They're all named John. We have John Owen, John, yeah, except for, all right, there's one. Uh, and Pilgrim's Progress. So if you're looking to name two Puritans, John Owen, John Bunyan. Not Paul Bunyan. Remember John. Um, <laughs> John Bunyan was uh, popular in the mid to just after middle of the 17th century. Uh, he even referred to those who lived before him as Puritans who have died out. So even by his time, he had already seen changes that in the 1660s, they were either imprisoned or killed. And then soon after his death, they were uh, tolerated. Pilgrim's Progress was written during his second imprisonment. He was put in prison first time for 12 years. Uh, and every day, not every day, often regularly, his oldest and blind daughter would come to visit him in prison. And the way he would continue to support his family uh, was by making little shoelaces that he would, ex he would give to her and she would take back to the family and sell those shoelaces so that the family would continue to live. And then he was released for a handful of years before being imprisoned for an additional year, I believe in 1772, in which time he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote many other books, and several others were also allegories. So Pilgrim's Progress is not the only allegorical book that he, he wrote. And so I would recommend doing that. There's several different translations and versions out there. I recommend for anybody to, to pick up one and and go through it. Uh, it's very, well, allegory is you're, you're linking pilgrims or Christians' life to the Christian life, that we would walk in the different temptations and benefits that we would see along the way. Uh, and here we see a quote, this, just a single quote. There are many that you can find, just Google online, you know, Puritans and, and what they believe. This is one of the one of the, that gives you a glimpse of their, their devotion. John Owen being referred to as the theologian's theologian, that he really captured biblical doctrine and, and put it in such a way that it really captures our hearts and minds. So hopefully that'll whet your appetite to understand a little bit more about what they believed, who they were, why they were, and to leave you with uh, just an idea I'm going to pull a page from David Calvert and actually bring a quote in from a, a mu musician, a modern contemporary musician, uh, who I don't think had Puritans specifically in mind when he said this, but it, it really does capture 
the essence and heart of Puritanism, that should continue to live on. So maybe Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Puritan. Maybe we are Puritans. Coming from Shylin, theology is the study of God and is very important. Doxology is an expression of praise to God. So the point here is that all theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, then we've actually missed the point of theology. So if you have theology without doxology, you, have ju you have just have dead, cold orthodoxy. But if we have doxology without theology, we actually have idolatry because it is just a random expression of praise, but it's not actually informed by the truth of who God is. So God is concerned with both. He's concerned with an accurate understanding of him and that accurate understanding of him leading to a response of praise, adoration, and worship towards him. That is Puritanism. <clears throat>